Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the podcast. I want to give a special shout out to our newest patrons, Anthony, Joyce, and Alyssa. If you have found value in the podcast, I'd like to invite you to head over to patreon.com slash marinebiolife to support the show. For less than a price of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help to keep the podcast episodes coming. Patreon.com slash marinebiolife. Question. What did the seal say to the sea turtle? Could you please scoot? My guest today is Dr. Cara Field. Dr. Field is one of only 30 veterinarians in the United States with a specialty in aquatic marine medicine and the medical director at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California. The Marine Mammal Center is the world's largest marine mammal hospital and education center. Getting her start as a volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center, Dr. Field has worked with animals across the country, including studying marine mammal diseases in both Connecticut and New Orleans. In today's episode, Dr. Field shares the tale of her career from her undergraduate work studying elephant seals to responding to the BP oil spill to becoming the lead veterinarian at the Georgia Aquarium, one of the largest aquariums in the world, and then finally coming back home to California and the Marine Mammal Center. Please enjoy. Dr. Cara Field, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am very excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here and to talk with you. So in your bio on the Marine Mammal website, it it says that you are one of the rare people who knew what you wanted to do in life at a young age and that you were the one that kind of played in the tide pools and stuff. Did you always know you wanted to do marine mammal veterinary work, or was that just, I want to work with animals and something in the ocean? Yeah, it was my, my early childhood memories are always wanting to help animals specifically. Um, And, you know, that included our pets and unfortunately, whatever little creatures our, our, our cats may have brought home with them. Um, But that also included uh, animals in the ocean. And I had the good fortune to grow up in Santa Cruz, which is um, uh, at the north end of Monterey Bay in an absolutely beautiful area, super close to the beach. And and I have a lot of wonderful memories of spending a huge amount of time um, on the water, in the water, and exploring tide pools and and the ocean is, is for as long as I can remember. So I think those two together, I always wanted to help the animals I saw on the beach too, whether it was a, a starfish that had washed ashore or a, you know, an injured bird or something. So I think those, those two um, experiences as a kid really made me want to help aquatic wildlife across the board. Amazing. So did you know when you went into college that you wanted to study veterinary medicine then? I did. Yes, it was. Um, I was intrigued by everything in college. And, and that's one of the <laughs> my fondest memories is that college was a time to learn about all kinds of, of everything that I had no previous clue about, about, you know, international relations and, uh, and anthropology and so many things. But I always came back to science. um, And I always, that that desire to go to veterinary school and and help animals never faded. Um, 
But one of my favorite classes that I took in college was a marine biology course. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was at Bodega Bay, which is a, um, a laboratory associated with University of California, Davis, where I went. And uh, that was an, a, an intensive quarter of marine biology. And that was far and away my favorite course in college. What were some of the things that you studied during that course? I think for me, the, the, the best part about it was physiology, was aquatic animal mm-hmm. physiology and, and mostly mm-hmm. invertebrates and, and um, you know, not so much marine mammals, but more fish and invertebrates. And it was also coast, coastal ecology class. And I just thought those were fascinating. I, I, I majored in physiology because I had such an interest in understanding more about these amazing organisms that inhabit this earth and, uh, and how they've adapted to their different environments. And, and it was an intensive course with a lot of laboratory work associated with it. And, uh, I just really felt a deep connection with the, you know, understanding how, how all these different animals and and organisms adapt to the world. Mm. Physiology is a fascinating topic. Now, did you go straight from your undergrad into vet school? Because you also went to UC Davis for to get your vet degree. Yes, indeed. And um, again, lucky to grow up here in California with such incredible resources. But but yeah, I I knew I wanted to go to veterinary school again from a younger age. And so I'd hope that going to attending UC Davis as an undergraduate would would help me there. And I did get Mm -hmm. some great experiences working in um, and with the veterinary school there. But after finishing undergraduate, I just felt a need to uh, take a break from school, really. <laughs> and I knew I wanted to go back to veterinary school, but I also knew it was pretty intensive uh, training. So I wanted to just take a break and work and travel and, um, you know, be young, 20-something. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, so that's what I did for a few years. Um, and uh, I was fortunate to be able to, to, to travel around a little bit and, and work a bunch of jobs to make that happen. But uh, and then I, I had trouble actually getting into veterinary school. So, um, so it wasn't, it wasn't as, uh, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not an easy <laughs> application process. So it took me a couple of tries. Now you volunteered for seven years at the Marine Mammal Center. Was this during, or like during your undergrad or after your undergrad during that time where you were taking a break? It was actually after. So, um, all, a lot of things kind of came together and, and started in, uh, 1998, when um, in between undergraduate and, and uh, at the time, I, I got accepted into graduate school actually first, and mm. I, was, I was working in a, a laboratory at UC Davis. And again, my interest in physiology was um, was had really grown, and so I started graduate school. And that same year, um, I was very interested in marine mammals and diving physiology. So that was the year that. I started volunteering at the Marine Mammal Center as well um, mm. because I, I I really wanted to understand more about um, how to take care of these animals and, and what the health challenges that they were facing looked like. So um, in, in my spare time from graduate school, which <laughs> wasn't a lot, but, um, but I, I managed to combine the two and it, it made for an, an absolutely incredible experience to uh, to incorporate the health and the medicine of these sick animals in the hospital and, uh, and do my, uh, my graduate work in studying the effects of um, high pressure on uh, platelets, on blood platelets from elephant mm-hmm. seals, which are incredibly deep diving animals. So I, the combination was, was just an incredible opportunity to, to 
look at all aspects of diving animal health. And I wanted to chat with you a little bit about this. I saw that you studied the blood platelets in elephant seals, and it's they're apparently the deepest diving marine mammal in the world, and they can dive up to a mile and stay underwater for two hours. I was like completely mind boggled. I had no idea. Yeah, they elephant seals are. Um, I'm not sure if they're they're truly the deepest divers in the world. There are a few whales out there, beaked whales, mm-hmm. and um, and mostly that that can dive also really deep and possibly deeper mm-hmm. than elephant seal, but. But for a pinniped, <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> they they nice. truly can dive uh, well over 5,000 feet or so. Um, I, I think the recorded record is over 1,600 meters. And yes, for almost two hours. So they are a diving machine. How did you study their blood platelets for this? I mean, you can't, how, like, how does that even work? I'm like, you can't really go down to a, a mile and like wait for an elephant seal and extract its blood and like put it in a bottle there and like take it to the surface and study it. Like, that's not how that would work. So what did you, how did that science kind of work? That was something that I had to try to figure out. <laughs> that was, you said it, it sounds amazing, but it was definitely not that simple. <laughs> There's um a group of researchers at, at University of California, Santa Cruz, who have been working with elephant seals for many, many decades, um, and who actually also partnered with the Marine Mammal Center on, on, on many different studies as well over the years. Um, but they, uh, they routinely go out and, um, and, and study physiology of these animals, of these elephant seals. And so um, I realized that, you know, doing something at sea wasn't really viable <laughs> for... <laughs> <laughs> studying that better, but but there are model systems that you could use to create a high pressure environment. So what I would do is is get I was able to work with the UC Santa Cruz researchers and with the Marine Mammal Center, um, mm. getting blood from elephant seals that were finishing rehabilitation and that were deemed healthy again, and also from animals that were you know that were being studied on beaches and and to better understand their physiology. And then I took those blood samples back to our lab at UC Davis and isolated the platelets. And then I I had a little miniature high pressure chamber that I could put the the platelets into. And um, and then with that little mini pressure chamber, uh, I could basically dive those cells as as deep as I wanted and then study the effects afterwards. So so my studies were all um, basically the the hands arm part was getting a blood sample from an elephant seal, which was not always the easiest thing to do. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> they are, um, they're incredibly strong and, uh, and really amazing animals, but, and then bring that back to the lab so I could, um, you know, study, study the cells, the blood platelets kind of in their own element. Uh, so it was, it was complicated. It was imperfect, of course, but, uh, but definitely a good model system. Very cool. So what were some of the things that you found with the blood platelets? Like, can they hold oxygen a lot longer? Or like, I mean, how does how does the deep diving reflex work with these pinnipeds? So they are uh, fascinating animals, and we're still trying to understand how that all works. Um, when elephant seals dive, as, as with many other marine mammals that dive deeply, they're um, they're breath hold divers. So as they experience that high pressure, the deeper they go, their lungs collapse. And so all they're mm-hmm. left with is the oxygen supply that's already within their blood. Um, but the the actual act of high pressure, and especially at the depths that they dive to, is phenomenal. And um, in, in people, 
Um, the previous studies have found that our blood platelets, which are there to help your blood clot, um, become activated with decompression. So as you resurface, our blood platelets go a little bit crazy and become mm-hmm. activated. And that um, can be a real problem for us. But these marine mammals are, are protected from that somehow. And so I wanted to understand how they were protected from that decompression associated activation, because that's, uh, it's great when we want ourselves to clot and, and, and uh, that's really important, but, but when you don't want them to clot and they do, that can be a major issue. So, so I found some differences in their composition and, and how they responded to pressure in comparison to human platelets. And, uh, and that was, those were some really unique and uh, novel findings and, so that's kind of where I ended it. And, and really, it would be incredible to pursue that work again someday. <laughs> There's just so much to do. <laughs> so much to do and not enough time well, to do it. Yeah, that's really fascinating, though. So you studied the elephant platelets and you got a degree in veterinary medicine uh, from UC Davis as well. And then you ended up moving over to the East Coast. What prompted that move? Yeah, so that that um, the Marine Mammal Center. So I volunteered here in when I was doing graduate school, and and then I, I did vet school at the same time. And um, after finishing those programs, it was a, a seven year stint, and um, I was I was feeling very educated um, <laughs> <laughs> and ready for a little bit of a break, and and wanted to do a little bit more practice of medicine, and and that's been you know, what a struggle to have my whole life, right? Balancing medicine and, 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 you know, physiology and, and, uh, and science. Um, so I, I, I've, I've wanted to find a balance between those two. And, and after that intensive schooling, I, I wanted to work in, of course, then you have to get a job apparently. Um, so that, that was of course a big driver and, uh, and where am I going to go and what am I going to do? And uh, so I, I worked in small animal medicine for a year because I felt like I wanted to you know, develop my veterinary skills a little bit more. And then I, um, I, was, I, I got a job at Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut uh, at the, in the research and, and medicine department there as mm-hmm. a postdoctoral researcher studying brucella in marine mammals. Um, and brucella is a bacterial infection that can cause reproductive failure. And we hmm. had recently, as a group of uh, marine mammal health experts, had found that it was responsible potentially for causing abortions and neurologic disease in many marine mammals. Um, and so uh, we had a big grant to, to study this disease, and that's where I kicked off my couple of years at Mystic Aquarium. Yeah, I was doing a little research in Nebris Ellis, and it was really interesting. There's actually different strains of this bacteria, and there's a terrestrial strain that cows can get, but then there's also there the paper that I read was two marine strains, and this may have changed um, since then because they were debating if like the dolphins had their own special one versus the rest of the cetaceans. But it was like uh, cetaceans had one, and then pinnipeds had another strain. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's exactly where we are right now, and uh, multiple different strains and names have been proposed and found over the years. And that's one of the exciting things about about understanding brucella because we've known that it's existed for we've known about brucella in general for hundreds of years, as as you said, in cows and sheep and goats. But um, but the marine brucella was was a, a sort of a novel finding, and 
the main things that we have found collectively, um, not just we at Mystic, but as a worldwide group of scientists, is that the cetacean strains seem to be really pretty nasty. Um, They Mm. seem to cause really severe disease, um, resulting in uh, meningitis and meningoencephalitis, which is brain inflammation, um, and Mm. are really uh, have killed a lot of marine mammals worldwide, which when you think about some of our endangered species or threatened species, um, that might be particularly significant for them. But the pinniped strains, though they cause disease, they don't seem to cause that same uh, neurologic disease and reproductive failure, um, at least not that we found yet in any pinniped. Uh, so, so it's a you know, there's a lot to understand. Did are these? Did they evolve separately in marine mammals? Did they start out as terrestrial and then enter the marine environment? Mm-hmm. Um, but we also know that marine mammals can get uh, other terrestrial strains. We think as well, um, just from the crossover between wild and, and domestic animals. So. So that interface of, of marine animal health and, and terrestrial animal health. Um, and we know that people can also get brucella, of course. So you throw in the people into there and, and that kind of brings us back to an area that I've always loved, which is this kind of one health uh, uh, analysis of the world that we, we all influence each other greatly in, in our different health aspects of life. And uh, it, was, it was really amazing to understand that and learn more about it. Absolutely. So how do marine mammals contract brucella? And really quickly, we keep saying like cetaceans and pinnipeds and everybody may not understand. So cetaceans are whales and dolphins um, and pinnipeds are seals, sea lions and sea otters. Are they included in that as well? Uh, seals and sea lions and walrus. Um, sea otters walrus. are uh, actually, they're in the mustelid family. So they're weasels. <laughs> they're <laughs> very little weasels, but they are um, the largest weasel out there. <laughs> okay, okay, so pinnipeds. <laughs> All right, seals, sea lions, and walruses. And then we have otters over there being little weasels, big weasels. <laughs> So um, do we do we know how brucella is contracted at all? Or is it just something that's constantly in the water and certain uh, mammals in certain regions are more susceptible? It seems to be at this point, the, 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 prop, the most um, promising and probably the most popular theories are that um, we, a number of research has have found that lungworms, um, the lungworm parasites that uh, different marine mammals get, especially whales and dolphins, have they kind of harbor this bacteria and so we think that that's actually how a lot of animals are getting exposed when they get exposed to these lungworm parasites um and then the 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 bacteria kind of sets up infection that way um but it can also be transmitted through the reproductive tract um or Mm -hmm. through so uh through um mating um and, and we think we haven't proven that theory because that has been more difficult uh, to determine in, in marine mammals that are, of course, free swimming and, and um, more difficult for us to, to, to get in hand. Um, but so ingestion, um, for sure, and possibly also aerosol transmission um, if there is an infection in the lungs. Um, mm. So usually in, in, for example, in cattle and sheep, we, we think, you know, reproductive transmission is, is a, a major important way um, that Bruthel is transmitted. But these aquatic animals have been a little bit harder to figure out 100%. Um, but we do think that the transmission routes are similar. Interesting. 
diseases. It's like a pre- prevalent topic right now. It's fascinating. <laughs> so after Mystic Aquarium, what prompted you to go move down to uh, New Orleans in the South? Yeah, that was, well, Mystic was amazing. Um, and I, I finished the internship there and then and then stayed on to do some more research. But then, unfortunately, the good times ended with the ending of our grant. So, mm. so it was back to um, finding a job. And yeah. uh, in New Orleans, there was a, a job opportunity for a veterinarian um, at the Audubon Nature Institute. And the job was to be the primary vet for the aquarium and the stranding program there, uh, which is, Mm. you know, marine mammal and sea turtle rescue and rehabilitation program. Um, And also work at the Endangered Species Research Center located there and the Audubon Zoo. And so to me, that seemed like an incredible chance to work with some species I hadn't worked with too much before. Um, I had some experience with dolphin rehabilitation, and but not mm-hmm. too much. And uh, some with sea turtles, but not very much. Um, and then the Center for Reproduction of Endangered Species is also just an incredible um, facility where uh, devoted to understanding how to help propagate endangered species um, and with a big focus on cranes, uh, sandhill cranes and whooping cranes and exotic cats like the African black-footed cats, um, caracals and and some other um, animals in the, in the kitty cat family. Um, so I thought that would be an amazing place to, you know, to get more experience with a lot of different species, but also continue to work with, um, with aquatic animals at the aquarium and, and help the stranding program there um, help respond to sea turtles and uh, dolphins and potentially even manatees. Hmm. That's amazing. What a cool opportunity. So you oversaw, I mean, you were the vet for the aquarium. So if any animals in the aquarium got sick, you were the woman to call. And then also it was part of the stranding network. So if the sick, a wild animal was called in, then you would also respond to that. Yes, exactly. And, uh, it ended up being um, a little different than I expected. <laughs> Most times are. <laughs> there was a little event that happened um, after I'd been there for about eight or nine months. Um, and that was the Deepwater Horizon uh, explosion that oh, yeah. in the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, and that was in April of 2010. So, of course, with a massive oil spill that continued for many, many months, we ended up getting, it, it was a complete disaster, literally, for the mm-hmm. area. Um, and so the Audubon Nature Institute there in New Orleans was designated as a primary triage facility for oiled wildlife, um, specifically sea turtles and, and any uh, dolphins or manatees that that stranded. So, um so those were some quite long days. We ended up receiving hundreds of oiled sea turtles. Um, mm. And, you know, the whole summer, which is already rather hot down there, was made mm-hmm. a little harder by the the heat and, and everything uh, or the, the, the massive oil spill and the, really, frankly, the ecological disaster um, that happened there. And so that was a, a rather different experience. Of course, our, our, our stranding partners in Mississippi and uh, Florida and Texas were also working um, really, really hard to help wildlife. Um, lots of birds, many more birds were affected. But but the longer that spill went on, the more wildlife um, and ecosystem health that is going to be 
impacted for decades and decades to come. And of course, those impacts are still happening now, um, as a, a lot of studies are ongoing to to understand what happened there. But uh, but that was as a veterinarian, my job was to you know take care of these sea turtles, and we did get a couple of uh, dolphins um, that stranded. Um, and we also had, unfortunately, a lot of dead animals. And mm-hmm. one of the most important things that we can learn from animals that that strand or that wash ashore um, was sick, that are sick or injured or, or die, is we can do a necropsy on them, which is basically an, an autopsy, to understand what happened to them. And that's something that's a, it's a really important thing that we can do. You know, if you have dolphins washing ashore during an oil spill, it's really easy to to blame the oil a hundred percent on that. But we also have to understand if there's anything else going on, like maybe there's an outbreak of brucella that's happening <laughs> at the same time and, and doing a, an autopsy on every single animal to truly determine the cause of death is, is so important. And that's a, you know, that's something that is, is worldwide really, not just here, you know, in California and the Gulf coast, that's a, a worldwide issue that we need to understand. Um, so that was a, a lot of work <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to to do autopsies on those carcasses, but we we learned an incredible amount from that across the board, and still are. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. So not only do you have sick animals stranding, but now you also are taking in the bodies and trying to determine truly scientifically and not make assumptions the cause of death. That is a lot. So how? about how many you said hundreds of sea turtles a few dolphins live came in about how many necropsies did you end up having to do that summer um i think i personally probably did somewhere around a hundred um mm. but there were more more uh carcasses that were recovered in different states of, of decay basically again the gulf is so warm mm. that the carcass will break down really fast and right. we just couldn't quite keep up with um you know our we wanted to certainly wanted to do the necropsies, but we also wanted to focus on, on the live sea turtles and helping them as well. So so many of those carcasses ended up getting frozen to be studied in depth at a later time. And I I believe there are at least a couple hundred more um, that were necropsied later, but, um, Mm. but at the time it felt like thousands, (laughs) you know, to do a really good necropsy, you you don't just do it in a few minutes. It it takes time and effort and, and you have to collect a lot of samples um, to, to look at uh, toxicology of different tissues, especially, you know, the liver and the lungs and, um, and looking for parasites, of course, and other infectious diseases. Uh, for example, some in the Gulf of Mexico, there have been outbreaks of morbili virus, which is essentially measles, um, but it's really it causes really nasty outbreaks in dolphins, especially around different parts of the world. And it's a viral disease and it's transmitted really rapidly among dolphins and causes a really high mortality rate. So, um, it, uh, so morbili virus is a, is a major killer. And we've previously had overlap of, of morbili viral infections and, and other diseases. So we wanted to make sure that we were trying to rule in and rule out all these other diseases that could be impacting these populations. Hmm. Were you able to see most of the turtles that came in? Actually, we were. Um, we uh, ended up mostly with small little turtles. Um, the majority of them were Kemp's Ridleys, and Kemp's Ridleys are an endangered species. And most mm-hmm. of the ones that 
were coming because the the main the oil spill was about 50 miles offshore these little sea turtles at that life stage they they are out at sea um hanging out in um in sargassum uh lines which are a kind of seaweed basically and that's where they kind of make their lives at these their little little tiny adorable kind of dinner plate saucer sized and dinner plate sized sea turtles <laughs> Um, but unfortunately, because they were, they weren't really washing up on the beaches, they were getting stuck in this incredibly thick oil and just were too small to swim away from it. So we had responders out in boats um, searching for these sea turtles, um, especially these endangered species, to try to help them. So this was a truly massive effort by hundreds and hundreds of people to help save these little sea turtles. Um, and fortunately, once we were able to get them into rehabilitation and stabilize them and get their oil off of them, uh, both inside and out, um, most of them did very well after that. So there were some other problems. Some of them um, did kind of overheat. Some of them had some other trauma and fractures and things like that, occasional shark bite. Um, but fortunately, the vast majority did, did quite well and uh, were able to release almost all of them uh, later in uh, later at the end of the year, or uh, in some cases, the next year. That's great. It's lovely to hear that they had a good survival rate. So after, I mean, you, that was a heck of an experience to be in New Orleans as a vet, as a, <laughs> say, aquatic veterinarian during the oil spill. What prompted the move? Was it grant funding again to Georgia Aquarium, which is amazing. It's the, I think the largest aquarium in the world or one of them. And I mean, they have whale sharks. Like that's a that's a cool aquarium to be transferred or to go back to. Yeah, yeah. I um, the the oil spill really had a big impact on me um, as far as uh, feeling a little bit fried, maybe. <laughs> no yeah. one intended, but apparently there was one there. Um, <laughs> I I while I loved the programs and the stranding network and. And a lot of things about it. Um, I did. I was missing. I was doing a lot of work at the zoo and the research center, which were great. But I was missing full-time aquatics. And when the job at Georgia Aquarium came up, I, I just happened to see it. I wasn't necessarily looking, but because I knew at the time it was the largest aquarium in the world, with as you said, whale sharks and uh, manta rays um, and a lot of other amazing aquatic animals. I was actually really excited and eager to get back to caring for all these diverse species, all these aquatic animals. Um, and there's also beluga whales and sea otters and, and lots of little creatures that I love, but I, I have always loved, uh, fish, um, sharks and rays in particular. And so I, I was really, really excited at the opportunity to work with a lot more of these ginormous fish. So, so that motivated me to, to apply for the job and, and I was fortunate enough to get it. That's amazing. So what, I mean, I'm sure your day-to-day -day varied wildly, but what were some of the general roles and responsibilities that you had while you're at the Georgia Aquarium as the senior vet? So my primary job was a, a combination of um, taking care of the collection there, which includes thousands and thousands of animals, uh, mm -hmm. both everything from tiny little fish and tiny little frogs and uh, up to the, the largest animals, the whale sharks and the beluga whales. Um, so to provide care for them and, um, and also to teach. So that's um, in all my previous years, I had done a fair bit of teaching of, of veterinary students in particular and occasionally residents or, 
or research interns, um, undergraduates who are interested in, in doing research as well. Um, but at Georgia Aquarium, we had a full-time resident um, who was basically a, a veterinarian who was specializing in zoo and aquatic animal medicine um, or and sometimes in wildlife medicine. And so we had one there full time in addition to our veterinary student contingent. And so a lot of my job was teaching them as well. And uh, we had some incredible, again, just really amazing opportunities to work with so many different animals. And one of the things that I love the most about Georgia Aquarium is that they they do have a really strong desire um, to help conservation in that conservation field and have supported a lot of research projects to better understand animal health and uh, similar to Audubon, help promote um, reproductive research into species that um, don't reproduce well in, uh, in a managed situation. So for example, sand tiger sharks, um, which are really popular for aquariums to have, but many of our shark species are being highly overfished um, and so the populations are decreasing really rapidly. And so most aquariums these days don't want to collect animals from the wild anymore. The idea is to have breeding programs so that the, the populations are self-sustaining um, and we're not impacting the wild populations. And so, so it was an opportunity to incorporate more research as well into my life. So you can see again, this balance of, or this attempted <laughs> efforts to balance, um, you know, medicine with research and teaching, which is uh, a combination that I absolutely love. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you were helping kind of create like a breeding program as well while you were there. So, yeah, so we started laying some of the foundations. So I'm doing a lot of um, investigation into normal reproductive health during the time that I was there. And since then, actually, I, I left before a lot of it came to fruition with the sand tiger sharks, especially. But now there is a, um, a much more active um, research program into sand tiger shark reproductive health that's still being conducted by Georgia and some other colleagues. Um, and then we also looked at uh, the health of a variety of different uh, stingrays, um, so down in the Cayman Islands, um, and also uh, spotted eagle rays, uh, again, around the the Gulf Coast and um, the East Coast of Florida and Georgia, of course, as well. Um, so just a, a number of different projects um, to better evaluate the health of some of these more unusual species for which there is very, very little information available. Um, so pretty much any any data that we can get was really helpful in understanding the reproductive cycles um, and all of those things. And then also, of course, um, taking care of our animals and, and furthering our, our treatment capability for, for some species like African penguins, which are also an endangered species of penguin, and, uh, and uh, sea otters, which are um, southern sea otters, which are also uh, endangered species. Really cool. So we mean treatments for better taking care of the African penguins and sea otters. What did that look like just to try to uh, increase their lifespan in captivity or? Yeah. Um, to, to help make sure that when, when these animals are in captivity, that they have the best possible quality of life. Um, mm -hmm. Of course they're, they're in our care. And so we accept the obligation to do the absolutely best that we can by them. Um, and of course we can never always mimic their natural environments, um, but their, their welfare and their, their well-being is so important 
and we want to you know maximize their their healthy lifespan and uh, understand um, health problems that they encounter that they may not encounter their wild counterparts may not encounter and vice versa um, because a lot of times we don't have the ability to establish a baseline health in some of our wild animals that might be more difficult to capture that might not be we might not be allowed to to study them so by understanding a lot of baselines in our our managed animals that allows us to extrapolate a lot of health data to wild populations um, so that if we get sick and injured animals especially for African penguins that may be affected by, say, an oil spill, um, the ability to have baseline health data um, and, you know, a, a set of normals can go a really long way in helping us uh, treat animals that have been impacted by other disasters or diseases. Very interesting. Baselines. I've talked about baselines on the podcast before and why they're so important, because if you don't know where healthy is, then you don't understand what is unhealthy, really. Exactly. So it's important to yeah. kind of establish what what that really looks like. And that's just what a baseline is. Exactly. I love it. So eventually, we wind back up in California yes. at the Green Mammal Center. So I, I mean, it sounds like such a really an amazing job at the Georgia Aquarium. Was California just calling you back home? It was. <laughs> it really, really was. Um, I, I really enjoyed my time on the East Coast and then the South. And, you know, I, I consider myself so incredibly lucky to have gotten the chance to to see other parts of our beautiful country and meet so many people and immerse myself in, you know, basically different cultures in a lot of way um, here within the U.S. But, yeah. but I've always been a California girl and, uh, <laughs> you know, my family are mostly here in California. And so, when I saw the job posting for the Marine Mammal Center veterinarian position, I, I literally jumped. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> as you know, my, my years of being a volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center and, um, and working with these, you know, the incredible elephant seals and, of course, the sea lions and all the other species, um, I was really, really excited by that. But, but more so, I was also excited by the additional, the research and the teaching opportunities that that presented as well, because... Again, those those all to me that those embody uh, embody a really fulfilling career um, to be mm -hmm. able to do medicine research and teaching. Um, and the Marine Mammal Center has incredible reach, really, in uh, in in marine mammal health, um, not just here in California, but but globally. Yeah, I your role def definitely seems all encompassing, and it does seem to combine. A little bit of everything that you like to do, whether like interacting with animals and also studying the medicine side. And I want to get a little bit more into that, but I would love for you to explain what the sea lion tsunami of 2015 is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the sea lion tsunami. Yes, we love our alliterative. Uh... <laughs> um, well, I, I seem, it seems. I don't want to blame myself, but it does seem that I, I follow or attract um, natural disasters. I'm not sure which, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I moved back to California at the end of 2014, and and uh, and it seemed that we were having um, a, an El Nino year, the part of the El Nino Southern Oscillation, where we're getting um, some more water temperatures, and the the previous two years had seen increased numbers of young sea lions that were stranding or washing ashore um, that were very underweight, um, that were not thriving. 
Um, so that was a bit of a portent of what was to come in 2015. And, and I, of course, had nothing to do with these names. But uh, what we did see in 2015, 2014 to 15, was this warm water blob um, that engulfed a huge amount of the Pacific Ocean, um, uh, you know, from the equator basically up to Alaska. And um, I am definitely not an expert on the blob, um, <laughs> all the oceanographic conditions that occurred to make that happen. But the conditions lined up to be disastrous for a lot of wild, a lot of marine life. Um, and what we think ultimately happened is that these warm waters uh, resulted in the normal prey for sea lions, especially, but also other marine life, um, their normal prey species to to go deep and go far offshore. And so California sea lions, they have their main breeding rookeries in the Channel Islands just off of um, Southern California. And um, we think with the prey basically disappearing, that the moms were not able to forage and find enough food to take care of their pups. So the mm -hmm. sea lion tsunami was was basically we had thousands and thousands of extremely malnourished, starving, and very pathetic little California sea lions uh, washing ashore at a very young age, at an age where they would still be with their moms, um, starting around you know five to six months, um, which they would normally stay with their moms till they're nine or 10 months or so. Mm. Um, and, and the entire state of course was impacted, but you know, that was, that was the, one of the things that was most visible, I think for us here in California was seeing these thousands on upon thousands of really, really sad little sea lions who were, you know, at six months of age, basically at their birth weight, watch washing up on shore. Um, so, uh, and of, of course our partners in different areas were also seeing very strange things <laughs> in <laughs> In the ocean, all kinds of warm water species had um, crept north and were, were being spotted everywhere. We had increased numbers of Guadalupe fur seals, um, which are a threatened species, also stranding. Um, it was it was a it was a it was a bad year <laughs> for, mm. for a lot of marine mammals. Um, so so that you know we we know that there are always fluctuations in our in our environment. Of course the El Nino Southern Oscillation, Oscillation or ENSO is, is a, you know, a, a good example of that, where the water temperature is going to vary and um, there are going to be impacts on, on the prey that marine mammals eat. And of course, on fisheries as well, because we all eat the same things that they do. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a, a, a massive year. And we also had a lot of, um, a lot of algae uh, that produces toxic substance called demoic acid, a lot of algae were kind of blowing up and we had a lot of these toxic algal blooms. So that also impacted the sea lions and caused throughout the whole year. Normally we see sea lions getting impacted from that in summer, but we saw um, sea lions throughout the year um, that were washing ashore that were um, intoxicated uh, or that had been exposed to this biotoxin. Mm. Wow. Crazy year. That was that yeah. was your homecoming. <laughs> Never homework. Yeah. So I mean, the marine the marine mammal center really is an incredible place. Uh, it's the largest marine mammal hospital in the world, based on the number of patients that y'all see, and you really cover. I mean, quite a lot of coastline. How does like a rescue work? Like, how do you get a patient in to your facility? 
We have, um, so as you said, we, we cover 600 miles of, of California coastline between central and northern California. And we also have a hospital for Hawaiian monk seals out in Kona in Hawaii. And Hawaiian monk seals are endangered species. So as you said, we have a, a pretty wide range <laughs> to cover. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of California coastline is, is, is um, basically urban. You know, we have San Francisco Bay and a lot of areas where there are a lot of people and then a lot of areas where there are not so many. Um, and so that requires a fair bit of driving, but also that required us to develop a massive network um, within our own um within our own center, um, in addition to the California stranding network and well, frankly, the, the stranding network around the, the U S, um, and the different regions. But, but within the Marine Mammal Center, we really started as a volunteer run organization where we had a couple incredible good Samaritans, um, who were not of course getting any money for it, established the Marine Mammal Center here in Sausalito. Um, and because they're wanting to help this wildlife, these marine mammals um, that were washing ashore with injuries or, or diseases. And, um, and that expanded into this network that we have now with well over 1,400 volunteers um, and about 100 staff that patrol that help us by, um, you know, kind of going out and, and rescuing. And, and we rely actually on calls from the public to mm-hmm. tell us when there are marine mammals that look like they might be in distress. And then we train our volunteers, our responders, and occasionally our staff to go out and do a more thorough evaluation because they know what to look for um, to assess an animal on the beach. Um, And then if it's determined that that animal does indeed need help, then we'll rally our troops and rescue that marine mammal and bring it to the hospital for treatment. So about how many animals do you get annually your calls to animals brought in ratio probably is pretty drastic it is it's actually crazy high um because while we have a lot of really amazing people out there with eagle eyes um we also get calls from people who are a little confused or who don't Mm -hmm. quite understand that it is normal for seals and sea lions to rest on the beach um (laughs) there's you know there's a lot of variability there but but one of our major goals is to educate people and and we want people to enjoy these beautiful charismatic animals um but we also want them to you know just let them be as with any wildlife you know it's their it's their beach it's their ocean as well as ours so we want to be able to share it with them um but we also don't want if we have a sick or injured animal we don't want them to be uh subjected potentially to additional harassment and so that's why um even though they there might be some natural processes that are going on uh, because our beaches are so popular and unfortunately, sometimes, you know, there are people who don't have the best intentions. So we do want to make sure that those animals get get the care that they need, but also, again, that we learn from them. And so before 2015, we would see probably on an average six to 800 animals a year. Um, but in 2015, during the sea lion tsunami, we had over 1,800 animals um, that we, patients that we picked up, um, that we cared for. And, uh, and since then, we've had usually between 800 to 1,000 or so animals per year uh, for the last five years. Um, so that's a pretty hefty number. These animals are, are not little, and uh, mm-hmm. they, they often have um, some really severe problems. So that gives us a lot to do. 
So you mentioned, you know, the sea lion tsunami of 2015 was largely sea lion pups. Do you also get adults come in as well? Yes, indeed. So our, our main patients that we get on site are California sea lions are, are definitely our most numerous patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do get all ages of California sea lions, including uh, adults. We also see a lot of elephant seals, mostly younger elephant seals um, that unfortunately got separated from their moms a little too early or weaned and were underweight or have been affected by storms. Um, and harbor seal pups, which uh, that's our probably our third most common species that we that we get. Again, usually um, harbor seal pups that normally would still be with their mom but got separated somehow, often by, unfortunately, by human um, interference. Um, often well-intentioned people uh, may approach a harbor seal pup and the mom might be offshore, you know, looking for food. Um, and people, unfortunately, are, are not quite aware that that's happening. And so... We end up getting a lot of separated pups, but um, but yeah, sea lion and then fur seals are the other biggest species that we get, both northern fur seals and Guadalupe fur seals, as well as some sea otters, <laughs> <laughs> our favorite little weasel. Um, and sea otters are uh, endangered, and so they are a, a critical species for our coastal habitat, and so they are really important um, to the ecosystem health as well. So it is they are, are critical animals to take care of. And then, of course, in Hawaii, we have our Hawaiian monk seals, which are also critically endangered. It's amazing. What is the difference between a seal and a sea lion? <laughs> That's a great question because um, it wasn't really biologists that named, for example, fur seals. Um, so sea lions are uh, are also known as otoriids. Um, and basically, they're they're kind of referred to as eared seals. Um, okay. But of course, all seals and sea lions have ears. It's really their ear flaps um, that, mm. are, that are very obvious. And um, so sea lions and fur seals, they're odorides. They, they walk on their front flippers. They have very long um, front flippers. They have ear flaps. Um, they can rotate their pelvis and actually walk on all fours. And uh, they swim using their front flippers to propel themselves. Whereas seals, which are often called phocids, um, which is basically means true seals, um, they don't have those external ear flaps. So you basically just see an itty bitty little hole um, mm-hmm. for their ear. And they basically move kind of like an inchworm. They move on their bellies <laughs> and, uh, and they swim using a, a side to side motion with their hind limbs, um, kind of more like a shark. Uh, so, so that's the main difference. And then walrus are this kind of bizarre mixture of the two, um, but we don't, we don't really see walrus here. So thank goodness. They're rather large. They are large and they have large tusks to contend with too. Fascinating. Well, thank you for that clarification. Absolutely. It's a very common, the names are particularly confusing when you, you, you see like it's sea lion and seal, and then you throw fur seal in there and it all goes out the window. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> So what, you know, you don't just rehab, you're the vet and you're not just rehabbing these animals that come in, but you're also, you also teach other aspiring veterinarians or other veterinarians around the world that already work with these animals. So kind of what are your other roles within the Marine Mammal Center? So the Marine Mammal Center, we have a, uh, our mission really is to promote global conservation and uh, education and care and stewardship of marine mammals as a sentinel essentially for ocean health. So we, you know, while, while our goals are of course to help 
um, injured and sick and marine mammals, it's, it's a much bigger mission than that, really. Um, we're all impacted by ocean health, and we all want to understand um, what the challenges uh, that our oceans face and, and how we as people affect those. So um, we have the unique opportunity to learn from hundreds and hundreds of patients that, that we bring into the Marine Mammal Center every year and learn about every aspect of them. So, so yes, we rehabilitate marine mammals and we take care of our patients and we help develop new um, techniques to care for them, new therapies. Um, but even more important globally is we study the reasons why they wash ashore, why they strand. Um, so, you know, is it a natural occurrence? Is it, you know, a biotoxin that's being produced that's poisoning them? Are they stranding with ocean trash? Um, every animal that is either euthanized or dies is ha, receives a full necropsy, um, and so we and we save samples from every animal so that if somebody who wanted to study them later, you know, we can give them samples or data or whatever it takes to help understand why these animals wash ashore, and that is a, a, a much bigger mission. Um, and and that has you know really huge global implications for understanding trends in in why marine mammals strand and because we have so many that gives us a unique opportunity also to train as many people um, as want to learn or at least that's our goal <laughs> um, unfortunately we we do have some limitations and and we can't take absolutely everybody at this point um, I would love to but we do every year uh, we get uh, over we get many many hundreds and hundreds of requests to come out and um, and learn how to care for these marine mammals. Um, at people are interested in data and samples that they can use for for different scientific studies. So in a given year, we'll we'll have at least over a hundred uh, people uh, of different walks of life, but especially scientists, veterinary students, veterinary residents. Um, we have a program for international veterinarians, um, and we bring them on site and teach them everything that we can about these stranded marine mammals and their health challenges. Um, and uh, often we'll provide samples for graduate students, for example, or um, the opportunity to um, learn more about our patients um, so that we can not just maximize our patient health, but also what we learn from our patients. So if we're rechecking uh, the blood of an elephant seal to, you know, to make sure that an infection has resolved, um, we can use that same blood sample and uh, help a researcher such as myself understand diving physiology. So it's it's a really an incredible, unique chance to combine all this science um, with all the health information and uh, and help really promote that, that global health concern uh, worldwide. That's really cool. It's a really special and unique position that you're in and that the Marine Mammal Center can offer. Cool place. And you're open to the public, correct? Yes, we are. We um, So marine mammals that are, are being rehabilitated are um, not allowed to be on display. Um, and that's uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service has designated that. And that's good because they're patients that are in a hospital. And so they're recovering from a lot of diseases. But we are open and people can still see um, when we are open, people can still see our patients as they recover, as they regain their health um, from a little bit, just a little bit more of a distance. Um, so we want to 
make sure that our patients are comfortable and that, you know, they're getting all the rest that they need to recover. Um, but we want people to see them a little closer than they might be able to in the wild as well, because they're, that's how we all learn and learn to appreciate our incredible diversity of wildlife that we have. Um, and having, being able to provide that experience or that, you know, sort of that first sighting of a, of a marine mammal is, it's, it's such a thrill for all of us to see people connect with the ocean in that way. Absolutely. It's a, you protect what you love. So absolutely actually get to know what you can love. <laughs> yes. Indeed. So I have a couple of questions uh, as we kind of wrap up here. One of my very favorite questions is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this can just be like a magical day where everything went right and you had an amazing experience with an animal or just that was a day that happened and it's a really great story now, but at the time we were in it. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) One of my favorite stories that um, I was kind of responsible for um, that one of the things that I I think is so important to remember um, is, is is that none of us ever know everything. And, um, and these animals constantly <laughs> remind and surprise us with, with their responses. You know, they're, they're really smart animals, they're charismatic, and they're wild, and they're unpredictable. And, um, you know, as much as I think I've learned about them, we always have something else to learn. So I think uh, one, of, one of my, one story that comes to mind is, um, is when when we have rehabilitated these animals and we release them back into the wild, um, you know, they're no dummies. They know very well that for the last couple of weeks or months, we've brought them fish and uh, have taken care of them um, to get them back back out there. And most of them, you know, they're, they're, they're a little ungrateful, which is completely appropriate. And they run off back into the ocean without a second glance. Um, sometimes they are just they're, they're just so happy and their natural behaviors kick in. So, so one day we released a sea lion, um, down on rodeo beach, which is the beach right by our hospital. And this sea lion decided that he was very, very comfortable and, um, had no interest in going back to the ocean and swimming away. Instead, he was so relieved to be back out on the beach that he kind of ran into the water and then stopped and then started rolling around in the surf line. Uh, (laughs) And to the untrained eye, it looked like he was having a seizure. Oh, no. <laughs> he wasn't. He was just so happy and and so happy to roll around in the sand. And um, unfortunately, Rodeo Beach is, we, we, is a, it's a beautiful beach, but there's a lot of people and dogs. And we sometimes release animals there that are a little bit older that usually run off. <laughs> and he just didn't. And so uh, we had to spend the next couple hours just kind of hanging out there on the beach thinking, <laughs> that he didn't um, come back up and, and join somebody and their dog on a, on a walk down the beach. Um, so just a gentle reminder for myself, who had suggested that site as a release for the sea lion, that, uh, you know, remember their behavior is unpredictable. And, um, and we do try to release them at more remote sites, kind of away from people so that they can take the time that they need to, you know, to sort of readapt to ocean. But uh just a reminder that these animals do what they want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great story. I love that. 
I often say like, you know, there's, there's like set rules and like general systems. And this can be like true for just nature in general, or like specific wild animal behavior. But at the end of the day, mother nature just does what she wants. (laughs) (laughs) I probably would have just enjoyed the the show that he was putting on if we had not just released him. (laughs) But, uh, That was that was a little embarrassing, and yet um, just a, another reminder of of that we always need to be conscious about what we're how we're how we're dealing with these animals. I know there's quite a few aspiring vets in the audience, and a lot of people that would love to work with marine mammals. Do you have any advice, pearls of wisdom to share? You've had quite an amazing career, and you've done a lot of really cool things, and you knew what you wanted to do. Was there any, was there a sort of um, skill or a mindset that helped you get to where you are? I think for me, the most important um, lesson that I've I've learned over and over is to not give up (laughs) and to follow your dreams. And even if they don't take you where you thought you were supposed to, or wanted to go, um, I, I think, I feel like I found that out pretty early in my lifelong pursuit and desire to become a veterinarian when I did not get accepted to vet school, um, when I first applied and, and that sort of mental setback kind of knocked me, back a little bit. And, um, you know, I was a good student. I wasn't as an undergraduate, I would not, I definitely was not exceptional. Um, but again, I was, I was good and I got decent grades, but they were not the, the top grades and veterinary school is very competitive. And so you do need to have really good grades because, um, there's, you know, somewhere around a thousand applicants for about a hundred spots. So, so it's pretty competitive. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I had the the amazing opportunity to grow up in such a beautiful place. And, and I worked, I worked hard, um, my whole life in school. And, uh, I think that that definitely showed, but, um, but it wasn't enough, (laughs) um, because the higher you kind of get in the, in the academic world and and, in your world a little bit, the more, you know, it's very competitive and, and it's more challenging. So, um, so it took me a few years of of working and sort of refining what my interests were but but in the end I'm I'm so grateful for that time because that helped me be a better veterinary student. I don't think I otherwise would have had the capacity to do vet school and grad school simultaneously. In fact, I'm quite sure mm-hmm. I would not have. Um, that was a, a, a rather challenge as it was um doing doing a PhD in vet school together. And uh I, you know, it, it was exhausting, but it was also exhilarating, um, being able to, again, in a way I'd, I'd never thought of to be able to match, you know, the science and the medicine. Um, so I, I wouldn't, you know, so don't take no for an answer necessarily kind of, but also, you know, sometimes a no is good and it helps you see other things that are out there. I I never thought I would have found myself working in New Orleans, but this opportunity came up and um and I found myself working there and and enjoying all that the South had to had to offer and it was it was incredible. And um so, you know, always always keep your options open, your eyes open. If you can try to volunteer cuz that is an amazing experience. 
um, if you're trying to get more experience in the field. And for veterinary school, you do have to have a certain number of hours of working with animals. And so that certainly helped me gain those hours. But also being a volunteer is, is something beyond yourself. You know, you, you're not getting compensated for it. Um, but what you're getting is an incredible, often an incredible experience um, that's altruistic. You're, you're giving your time, you're donating your time and your efforts and your energy and your love and your passion. And, uh, and, and that just is a, a really unique thing, I feel like. And my seven years volunteering at the Marine Mammal Center really helped that. I, I was taking care of these incredible animals. I had the opportunity to not just take care of them, but, but learn about them, to touch them, to hear them. Yes, definitely to clean up after them, <laughs> but, um, but to appreciate just how amazing they are. Um, so whether it's at an aquarium, uh, on a beach cleanup, you know, at a, a at a wildlife center, wherever, um, if you have the opportunity to volunteer, I think it's just an incredible thing. Um, and every experience is different, of course. And uh, I, I again, I think for for younger folks that are starting out in this career, try to try to get some diversity behind what you think you want to do. I mean, I did know I wanted to be a veterinarian, but I did not. I didn't at the time know that you could even be a vet for aquatic animals, you know? So, so many years I was like, I'll, you know, I'll be a cat and dog vet. That's great. And, um, or maybe a cow vet, you know, I, I didn't know that it was even possible to take care of aquatic animals. And so, um, so, you know, reach out, do a lot of reading. It's a lot easier now than when I was a kid with all the electronic resources available. So, you know, it's at the touch of your fingers is all these different worlds that you can explore. Absolutely. That's great advice. And I like to end each episode with a conservation ask or topic for the audience to go forth and do. And you had some excellent ones. Would you like to share them with the audience? Absolutely. So I think um, some of the most important things that I've learned that we can all do to help each other and help our planet, which is, is you know, that's a big ask, but, but all the little things that we do really do matter. So if you're, you know, if you're out in the wild, whether it be on the beach or in a forest or whatever, um, and you see some wildlife, enjoy it. But at the same time, please leave them be to, to live their lives and, and do the things that they're supposed to be doing. So keep your distance. Um, and then uh, there's a lot of things that we can all do to help the environment and, and help our planet, really. Um, so, you know, reuse, reduce, recycle. Um, you know, dispose of your, your trash, uh, in a responsible way, um, help clean a beach, pick up trash. If you're out there, all these little things that we do matter and what other people see us do also matters. Um, so, you know, consider your planet, the animal health, all those little bits of trash out there that, um, a bird might take home to feed its chick or a marine mammal could get stuck in and cause a severe, um, entanglement, a life-threatening entanglement around its neck. All those things, all those little things that we don't often think about can have a huge impact on these animals and on our, on our earth. So, so be conscious and uh, conscientious. And um, uh, with a marine mammal, if you do see a marine mammal on a beach that looks like it might be in distress, then call your, your local rehabilitation or wildlife response uh, folks to give them a heads up. Great asks. I should also add that we're a nonprofit organization and we're, you know, we're completely dependent on the public to help us continue our mission. So if people do want to help in addition to, 
you know, helping locally wherever you can. You can donate to us at the Marine Mammal Center online, for example. Um, you know, even every every little bit helps our our animals, our patients that are recovering. They they need a lot of food to get back to a good state of health, and of course, medical care and all of those things. So, so if you are able to donate and help us out by looking after these animals, then we certainly welcome that as well. Perfect. Thank you. And I'll put a link to the Marine Mammal Center in the show notes for the audience as well. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Carl, this has been a really lovely chat. I've enjoyed hearing your story. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the chance to share my story. And um, I have to say, I'm, I'm so grateful for everything that I have been able to experience in life. And I really hope that other people um, follow their dreams as well. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.